Rebecca Adil here. Just another one of my weekly messages to you guys. Firstly, to thank you for all of the amazing reviews that you've been leaving. Honestly, it's so heartwarming and encouraging. And I'm just so pleased that people are actually listening to the podcast and enjoying it. So if you can keep doing that, that would be fantastic. Also, as I've said before, we do have a Patreon account, www.patreon.com forward slash killing underscore time. Do join us. There's lots of extra content there. We've got mini interviews, well, extra bits of interviews. We've got blogs and all of that kind of stuff. Also, yes, tell your friends, family, anyone else that likes listening to podcasts, because podcasts live and die on word of mouth. So if you can shout about it and tell lots of people then hopefully we can um, keep going for a lot longer anyway i've kept you for long enough you want to listen to the content so on with the show welcome to killing time the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider histories i'm rebecca adil and i'll be your guide sit back relax and listen as we delve into episode 10 the irish famine On the 11th of September 1845, the Freeman's Journal of Ireland reported on the sudden appearance of what they called cholera in potatoes, especially in the north of the country. When the crop was harvested in October, the scale of the contamination took everyone by surprise. In one swoop, the staple diet of an entire population had been decimated. Over the next few years, Ireland would be brought to its knees by famine, disease and mass emigration. never know the exact number of people to have perished as a result of the famine. Estimates place the death toll at around one million, but it could be far greater. One person to have looked at the famine from a very personal perspective is the actor, science communicator and author of the beautiful family memoir, Flesh and Blood, Stephen McGann. Stephen McGann, thank you for coming onto the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm all right. It's an absolute pleasure, Rebecca. I think your podcast is brilliant. And I'm a little bit thrilled, actually, to come onto it. A little bit thrilled. I like it when I come on and mix with proper big history people. Because ah. I'm, a, as people might know, I'm a bit of a history fanboy. I love it, you know, so and nothing I like better. Thank you. But you're not, you're not, you're being extremely modest. You're not a fanboy at all. You are a, a science communicator, but you've written yeah. one of the most moving books that I've read in recent years. And it's an account of your own family called Flesh and Blood. And that book, part of it is going to form the topic of our conversation today on the great famine in Ireland. So let's go straight into it then. First of all, could you set the scene for me? What was Ireland like immediately before the famine broke out? It was subsistent. Ireland was somewhere which economically and the way that that land ownership had happened, uh, say if you take the first half of the, the 1800s, the the penal laws had come in in the very first part of the 1800s mm. and Catholic emancipation didn't happen until 1829. But the population basically lived 
in a subsistence way in which parts of the developing world do now. The, there were large tracts of land owned by landowners, many of them absent, and it was a largely rural population, very, very poor, paying rents for ever tinier tracts of land on these large estates, ever subdivided over the generations, very, very poor soil. Working these lands were always not as owners, but as debt payers. Mm-hmm. The debts were known as the, the, the gale, and they used to hang over their debts. Thus, there was an expression called the hanging gale. Now, these people, for the first half of the century, subsisted. The reason they could survive in this way, and in fact, the population increased incredibly from about 1801 by millions to, to the mid-1800s, really on the strength of one vegetable which is the potato. And this poor soil in many parts of rural Ireland could actually take the potato crop. And the potato has this amazing quality. It's incredibly, alone as a single or almost single source of food, it's incredibly nutritious. And although these people had large families and they were desperately poor on the land, they could survive actually quite well. One of the big downsides in living in this subsistence way, this large Catholic population, was that the potato crop wasn't very reliable. And even before the great potato famine of the 1840s, about every three or four years, there would be crop failures, partial, heavy crop failures. And in a normal year, even if the potatoes were okay, this large peasant population would be in a state of near starvation after the crops are brought in around summertime and there'd be a gap where they ate oatmeal in the summer, where they'd have to go to a kind of loan shark called a gombe man and see through till the next crop where they could eat because it was their only source of food. They would have to buy oatmeal at huge overpriced expense to these high sort of loan sharks. And so they lived this hand-to-mouth existence, but the potato kept them all going and actually, in a way, kept them thriving to have more kids until the failures that were happening intermittently happened again and again and again over roughly a five-year period. And that then was a completely different matter and a devastation so, so this, so in obviously, as you say, in 1845, it, it did escalate to a scale that was unprecedented. But what was it that was affecting the crop? It was very different. So they'd had different kinds of, and um, you know, without being a sort of a, a potato expert, they had different kinds of <laughs> dropsies and diseases of the potato which affected it. This was a new one. The potato blight, they say, most probably came from the United States. It was a brand new infection of the potato crop that no one had ever seen before. It affected the east coast of the Americas first and and absolutely devastated the potato crop. And it called Phytophthora infestans, but actually we know it commonly as the potato black. And it's still around hitting potato stocks today. And we have to spray crops for it. It's a really serious enemy to, to, to even nowadays. But back then, what happened is it then spread to Europe, devastated crops in Britain and in Germany in particular. And lots of people died, but it was not the main staple they had other things to eat. What people quickly began to realise is if this thing ever landed in the island of Ireland, something really, really serious could happen. 
and it did in 1845. It finally reached Ireland. Now, this was a fungus. They hadn't seen it before. Now, this fungus is, well, it's it's demonic in a, in a sense. It's beautifully designed to destroy all of those lives because it stayed in the ground. It would, it would, it could in in weather which wasn't conducive to its spread, it would be able to 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 go dormant and stay. But in Ireland, a terrible combination of just the perfect types of weather combined with the arrival of this thing to completely devastate the crop in 1840, from a particularly 1846. It came in 40, we got into 46, and then everything went wrong. And it, from then on, it, it, it persisted. And then the effects of disease and famine became escalating problems in themselves. An artist named James Mahoney from County Cork was commissioned to illustrate the scenes he saw all around him immortalising the plight of millions. In the village of Skibbereen, he wrote how... Here for the first time, the horrors of the poverty became visible in the vast number of famished poor who flocked around the coach to beg alms. Amongst them was a woman carrying in her arms the corpse of a fine child and making the most distressing appeal to the passengers for aid to enable her to purchase a coffin and bury her dear little baby. In Bridgetown. There I saw the dying, the living, and the dead lying indiscriminately upon the same floor, without anything between them and the cold earth, save a few miserable rags upon them. In the north of Ireland, the situation was not much better. The coroner of Monaghan kept meticulous notes which provide a raw insight into the plight many faced. Father Edward McGovern gave evidence during one case where a man and his family had been living at the back of a ditch. The coroner noted down Father McGovern's testimony. Many persons have met with sudden deaths in this parish, which he believes to have originated in want and destitution. Also knows that the number of deaths in this parish average at present between seven and eight each day. Another case was that of Pat Murphy from Drum Crew, who died in 1847. The coroner describes how... The bed clothes of the deceased was an old single blanket, and when the weather was wet, the rain fell on them when lying in bed. There were two days in which they had one meal of food. When there was much down rain, the deceased would lie on some straw on the floor. He had no bed. Finally, a beggar who died on the roadside on the 29th of June 1847 was described as being He was in extreme destitution, extremely filthy and swarming with vermin and that the neighbours considered he was ill with yellow fever. None offered to take him into their houses. And how does your, I mean, we will move on to your family now, and it is your, it's a, your actual family name as well. So this, these are direct ancestors of yours. Yeah. How do they fit into this story? And, you know, how do they deal with this situation? It's very, very, it's devastating. I suspect, I may have spoken to you once before, Rebecca, I suspect your people came through the port of Liverpool. Yeah. And, and mine certainly did. And what happened, my, I picked up my own family as a keen genealogist. First of all, when I was a boy, when I would go down to Liverpool Records Office and, and look to tr- start to try and trace my family tree, and one encountered in the records 
A sort of, a bit like astronomers look into the sky and see the remains of a supernova. The Crab Nebula is one in the sky. And if you go, if, permit me to go off in a, in a flight of fancy, what they look at, there's a particular famous Crab Nebula where you see the after effects of a massive explosion. And you look at the, the sort of, the, the, the remains of it essentially back in time. And as I went back into these records, I saw the same thing. I began quickly to see that there was this sort of elephant in the room. There was this terrible thing behind which this tide had arrived in my city. And all of the effects came from there. Basically, my own family, as I later found out, were in the, the county of Roscommon. And it was particularly badly hit. Roscommon lost a third of its whole population. They eventually followed the masses of people towards particularly it reached a height towards the end of the famine and for the years afterwards they followed the tidal wave of people who came to the port of Liverpool and my particular yeah. family they basically carried on dying of, of of starvation and disease when they arrived in Liverpool so they when the British records picked them up their their children are still dying of starvation in the Dockland slums so then they brought the disease with them one of the main diseases being what they call the Irish disease, charmingly, in the days of tr in the days of Trump and the Chinese virus, diseases have a nationality and are ascribed to a people. But they they brought this over with them, and my people my people were picked up dying of these and things like smallpox infesting the slums of Liverpool, and that's how I first found this larger picture behind. And I then traced them back to. Um, an area called French Park in, in Roscommon, which was badly hit and had very, very bad hospital provision, I later found. There was only one hospital for something like 300,000 people and the disease and the typhus was just terrible as well as the starvation. So it was a very... Ugh. And the reason I'm here now talking is, of course, the legacy of that, the, the great diasporic legacy of that is, is, is we are a product, whether we like it or not, of someone else's flight. That's well, that's what that's what I that's what I think was well. That's what's really interesting to me is obviously, I mean, the 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 scale of of death in Ireland is astronomical. I mean, during that period, I think how how many people died? It had about eight million people in Ireland, and if you're mixing different, oh, a million and a half, I think, or they told some say two and a half. It's very hard to count because there weren't records being kept. Like mm. they are now, and certainly back then about the Irish in the mid-1800s, the records simply weren't being kept. Records are very, very difficult. There, Even before there was a fire there, during the revolutionary battles in 1920, that burnt a lot of records there. They, they yeah. It was very, very sketchy. But they say the population was about 7 million. And by about 1880, you're down to 2 million in Ireland. <laughs> So, so it was, I mean, transhumance, so you had emigration and flight of people. So there was this, I mean, it's, it's a cataclysmic loss. And I feel it worth mentioning with resonances, I mean, how one tries to absorb that as someone living in the modern age like me with their family. As I saw very recently, during the, the Syrian war, I remember reading an article talking about the, the, the illegal immigration taking place in Europe by speedboat across from Africa or, you know, these gangsters taking families of people. And yeah. I read this very chilling and arresting story about Syria. Syria was, it had not simply the destitute, but it, it actually had a decent middle class and merchant class in Syria. This wasn't some place on its knees when the war broke out recently. This yeah. is a place that had families that we would recognise, like our own, 
with families and children and choices to make and even maybe a shop running or a business. And these were people ending up on a speedboat, mafia paid, giving money over to gangsters with a possibility of death, possibly at 50%. And what people were saying in this article is you've got to think of when a nation finally is that desperate, where their business class, where everybody is running, where you have no choice but to go through the outrageously risky thing of going to a foreign country, of sitting possibly in in an even like my family did and died, living in possibly an even worse situation. Think of how desperate one has to be and then think of the country they leave behind. Think of the cataclysm that once it starts, as someone was saying about Syria, how does that country rebuild itself when all the flower of their country have made such an awful, terrible, brave, frightening decision to risk their lives on such a wild chance, which is what my people did. And that's, I could see a fellow feeling. I could realise in those people what had happened, because that's what happened to my folks. But that's that's what I was going to say as well. Like, so you had you had this mass emigration from the country, and people went to mm. places like, oh, probably most famously to um, America, and went through Ellis Island and um, also Canada. But for us, and we're both talking here with our Northwest accents, and we're both direct products of this because my family emigrated as a consequence of the poverty of the famine as well. From they were from Crookhaven in County Cork, and. I just wonder about this, the longer term legacy of the famine, whether that's something that you have any particular, well, I'm sure you do, feeling about. I do. And here's a really interesting thing. You know, I'm talking to a historian. I adore historians. I'm a very keen genealogist and I'm a storyteller. I've spent a life performing and telling stories in various guises, even as a science communicator. And I know the limits of blood. To me, my view is that it's not about blood and heritage in one's narrow genetic sense. I don't believe in genetic pedigree, I should say. I I, I think pedigree is nonsense. Starvation is as moving and as real a narrative, more real a narrative to me than anything. The, 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 The criminality of any ancestor is fine by me. That this is a story of real people living in a real time. I'm interested in as I'm interested as much as a narrator, as a as a as an actor, if you like, as a as someone who loves history as as a lived experience by those people. And what does it mean for us too now? I think it changed the city that you came through, the city I spent my life in early on. It changed it beyond all. I mean, that's a whole other conversation, but the, the fascination of the changes to that city are amazing. And so it changed that character. And of course, anybody who knows certain names like Lennon, McCartney, things. Of course, it had a legacy in that city. These are, these are Irish diaspora children. These are people who, 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 who grew up and came from the results of that, of that diaspora. And Liverpool, as you know, it's a funny place. It's a very different place. Now, that's not just because of its Irish heritage, although that's a part of it, but it's also because of its Welsh melting pot and other things. But the Irish in there has a very strong identification. So I am a product of the, um, it didn't, you didn't just throw a, a, a sort of a, a viral dice in the mid 1800s onto one island. You also changed the fortunes of the United States of America 
Kennedys, Clintons, anybody. You changed the whole dynamics of that country, of Canada, of Australia. You, you actually changed the course of the West because when you look at the Irish diaspora, you cannot but say that politically, even geographically and even engineering-wise, it built the West from the mid-1800s. It had a huge influence on the West. And so, therefore, that legacy is there. But for my funny old town, that was the first stop and a strange anteroom for those who didn't even have the money to carry on to the United States. And so we are part of that, I called it the flotsam, I think, in my book, that strange dowdy flotsam who stayed behind and and later became the Beatles and poets and everything else. <laughs> and they, you know, that's a very interesting mix. That's a very interesting mix. So the pride of heritage in that sense, I feel very strongly, although I don't believe in, even genealogically, I don't believe in the hold of particular blood. I believe that a family is a wonderful thing to research, and it, but it's as much about our choices. A family tree is as much about our, our choices as our genetics. It's as much about the things we choose to be, like the in-laws we have and people. It's the family we choose to have as well as the ones we, we have by biology. And so that heritage coming through to me in Liverpool is one I choose to have, not necessarily one which, you know, I, basically on Patrick's Day, I don't wear all green and go marching down the street. Uh, no, no, that's, that, yeah. it's much more interesting. I think history is far more interesting and complex and subtle than that. But do I feel a part of that heritage? Well, I can't avoid it. You know, my Catholicism, mm -hmm. my, my, my identity with the city where I was born and the way it thinks, I cannot but feel that. Oh, Stephen, this has been such a fascinating conversation and I think we could go on for much, much longer I and think talk we about could, <laughs> all of our family family histories and probably work out how far they were living from each other and all of that business. But um, I think we'll, we'll leave it there for today. Um, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. The famine, starvation and emigrations permanently changed the culture, politics and demographics of Ireland and created a huge new Irish diaspora. It's not my place to speak on the experience for those to have remained in Ireland, but from a historical point of view the country did recover. But the experience put into sharp focus what many already felt, the deep inequality in society where the many were expendable to the few. Like Stephen, on a personal level, I'm acutely aware that the reason I exist speaking the language I do in the accent that I have is a direct consequence of the famine. My own great-great-grandfather was part of a second wave of emigrants. He left his poverty-stricken village in Cork in the 1880s to make a new life for himself in Liverpool, marrying a local woman and setting up home a stone's throw from the newly erected Anfield Stadium. To quote from perhaps the most famous famine ballad, Skibbereen. O oh, father dear, I oft times hear you speak of Erin's isle, her lofty hills, her valleys green, her mountains rude and wild. They say she is a lovely land, wherein a saint may dwell. So why did you abandon her? The reason to me, tell. It's